Well, maybe you know somebody like this. Uh, many years ago, I had the privilege of working on staff with a man named Bill. He didn't work here at John Knox, so you probably don't know who he is. Uh, but I don't imagine, again, anybody knows who he is, but I changed his name. His name's not really Bill. But he's a real person, and if you had met a person like this, uh, you would know that this person, particularly Bill, most assuredly would talk about the Holy Spirit. He was a Holy Spirit talking guy. Most conversations with Bill would invariably come to a point, a moment where Bill, with knowing look, would name, and I managed to miss this every time, he would name the thing that I missed in the stories I would tell him. Say something came together in a way that was unexpected, right? Something good happens, a victory of sorts. The outcome exceeds expectation. Bill would look at you and say, Holy Spirit. Or perhaps the telling was one of longing for an outcome yet undiscovered, being uncertain of what the future might in the end hold. And with a slight change of inflection, Bill would look at you and say, Holy Spirit. A request for prayer. A request for anything at all. Holy Spirit. That's what Bill would say each and every time. I don't know anyone more convinced than Bill was of God's activity in our world and in our lives. No one. I don't know. No one even measures up to that. Even the great scholars who are Pentecostal scholars like Gordon Fee, I don't know if they measure up to Bill's Holy Spirit. In fact, the department that Bill worked in was in charge of our Wi-Fi password. I bet you know what the password was. <laughs> Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit. I won't say where the place is because now you have access to their Wi-Fi possibly. <laughs> but that's something, this, this Holy Spirit, this God's presence moving amidst us, around our lives, surrounding us, it oftentimes goes unnoticed. It gets drowned out by the mundane busyness of life. It's oftentimes when it is seen met barely with a glance as we race through our days. But yet, something here is significant, and it deserves our attention. And Pentecost, Pentecost Sunday, offers such an opportunity. You didn't know that when you came in this morning, that Jimmy was going to hold you captive to listen to something about Pentecost. Okay, maybe you did. Some of you were red. I see you already knew that was happening. But before we go there, let's talk about Pentecost itself, what, what, what that represents. Writing for Ligonier Ministries, Mark Johnston observes this. He writes, The day of Pentecost in Acts was one of the great watershed moments in the history of redemption. What God had promised in Eden unfolded through the pages of Old Testament revelation and secured through the finished work of Christ. He fulfilled on that day in Jerusalem when the Holy Spirit was given. But long before it became one of the great watershed moments in, Christian, in the Christian story of redemption, Pentecost itself was part of a Jewish liturgical calendar marking one of the three great annual feasts, or what we might call pilgrim festivals. It still is today, but in Jesus' day, the occasion marked the beginning of the harvest. It was associated with bringing in first fruits, and we see that in passages like Exodus 23 and Numbers 28. Following the destruction of the temple in AD 70, it began to have a bit of a shift, a change to the way that it's uh, celebrated or commemorated today with the receiving of the law at Sinai. And that's, again, that's how, we, how Jews would celebrate this particular festival today. They would have much more emphasis on that. Well, you don't have to be a scholar in this room this morning. You don't have to know much history to know what holiday travel looks like. Right? 
It's in the headlines this weekend, you know, record-breaking travel weekend. It's very much part of our lives, if you go down to the airport, in our lives directly as we live close to an airport. But it was also part of the first century experience as well. People would be traveling from near and far to Jerusalem to present their offering at the temple. And of course, that's not only people bringing offerings, but anybody who would service the holiday. When you think about vendors and people that would converge on a city who might want to make a quick buck, or just someone who wants to observe uh, the holiday and see all the happenings going on. People watchers, if you will. Maybe these are ancient people watchers. They don't go to the mall, they go to Jerusalem. The picture here is a city that is teeming with people, and this group would be representative of the nations. Diverse language sounds, both accents, but also the words that are spoken. These are what's filling the markets. This is what's filling the city streets and the temple courts. It's vitally important here for us to hold this diversity in mind as we hear what unfolds here in this passage and here in this early pages of Acts. Or we might miss what God is up to. We might bypass what God is trying to accomplish altogether. And hanging somewhere in the backdrop of all of this are those words that were spoken at a much earlier time by Moses. While in the wilderness with God's people. When Moses said, would that all. Would that all the Lord's people were prophets. And that the Lord would put his spirit on them. We heard that this morning in our text. In our first reading. When he says these, Moses has pretty much had it with the nation. We should probably set the context there. He's had it. He's done. Forget about it. We might think of it like in a glorious, sacred, kind sense. Moses is like, I'm done with you. I wish everybody had this experience because I'm tired of having it. We need to spread the wealth out here. So he's speaking from exasperation rather than a true heart desire. The chapter, chapter 11 itself, opens with people complaining. And that's why he's having the challenges he's having. Now, the good thing is, in the church today, people do not complain to leadership. So we haven't had that experience. So it's so foreign to me what this text is talking about. But the gripe here is directed at ownership, right? Management hears it, but the gripe is actually directed at ownership. They don't feel that they, that is the people here, are in particularly good hands. Again, this is an ancient thing. It doesn't ever happen in our day and age. And it doesn't go unheard. Text tells us that the Lord heard it and his anger was kindled. Not, he didn't go to like a digital book, all right? It wasn't kindled in that way. All right, no? No one this morning? Not enough coffee in the back there for everybody? Okay. All right, thank you, thank you. But how curious a response from this people that they would be complainers in this way. Their complaining is putting quite a strain on management as we see here, i.e. Moses. But only a couple chapters earlier, in chapter 9, they are instructed at that point, Numbers chapter 9, to regularly commemorate the Passover, with they being all the people. And there's a note there in the text that makes us know that it's all the people. In fact, there's some folks who come forward and say, hey, we recently touched a dead body. Kind of a stand-by-me moment. No? Nobody? <laughs> wow, tough crowd. That's all right. Yeah, I got all right, good to get the reference. Someone asked me about these references inside these sermons. They asked me to update my references by, by going back a little further uh, in time. That was, actually, that was actually shared with me. So we're trying, we're trying. But I can't get out of the 80s for some reason. 
But a group comes to him and says, hey, we recently touched the dead body. Can we participate? You know, what are we supposed to do? Because they're unclean. And the provision that comes to him is they too need to participate. Or what if you're on a journey? You're out of town. Can't make it to Thanksgiving this year. They have to participate as well. So when it says everyone, it says everyone. God wants everyone participating. So if anyone is keenly and freshly aware here of God's saving activity, both personally because it was in their generation and now reenacted year after year after year, it was going to be this lot. And what's more, this same chapter, chapter 9, notes that God's presence is visibly evidenced, both in cloud and fire, over the tabernacle. So if you're raising a beef about leadership's ability to provide for you in this wilderness context, there's a failure of memory. There's a failure of memory here. But probably more accurate, a refusal to remember. Chapter 10 includes additional memory aids, we might say, for the nation. Silver trumpets, of course, are part of that. But those don't seem to be serving the people's memory come chapter 11, which again, that starts off with them complaining. Instead, this people look selfish. They look petty. They look insecure. And where their memory kicks in, according to verse 5, is pointed at the foods they enjoyed in Egypt, foods they enjoyed while they were enslaved and in bondage. Not deliverance. They remember fish and cucumbers, melons, leeks, onions, garlic. Cucumbers, really? Leeks? But that's what it says. That's what comes to mind. And the complaints then are turned on Moses. And when they do, Moses withers. The great Moses, the great leader, he withers. He now joins the chorus. And speaking to God, he says, Why have you treated your servants so badly? And if this is the way you're going to treat me, put me to death at once. Kill me now. He's had it. He's had it. Like I said, when he speaks the word, the spirit falls on all people. He's exasperated at that point. What a bunch of complainers. Who do these people think they are, right? Well, truth be told, they're not too unlike us today. <laughs> I think I hear myself here. And that's as insightful as it is troubling. Covenant faithfulness, particularly when we think about worship, oftentimes takes a back seat to dissatisfied complaining, both then and now. And had the story ended there, we might go on our merry ways, counting out yet another ancient and failed people group. You remember those people? Nope, don't remember them at all. Lost to the annals of history. But unlike people, God operates far differently. That much we see in Scripture, and that much we know in our own lives. Grace to a weary Moses, expanding his leadership. Seventy elders to bear the burden of the people and carry some of the responsibility. That's what shows up in verse 17. And not just on those who showed up for the meeting, but also on two who remained in camp. God's spirit dispersed to a larger audience to care for a greater number of people. That's how God operates. He hears the plea. He offers mercy and grace. Grace to a people who demand meat. Giving them quail. Giving them quail. A dizzying amount of quail, if, actually if you read the passage all the way through. A gift of abundance. But also an important lesson. Because they get sick of the quail they're eating. God is far more capable than you might have previously imagined. Seems to be the lesson here. 
Though what you want may not be what you need. That God knows what you need. And then there are Moses' words. Would that all. I don't imagine Moses here realized that what he was saying in that moment, certainly not the global scope or reality they might one day become. But this is clearly what was in the mind of God to do. And that would be made all the more clear centuries later by a prophet named Joel, who we read in Joel chapter 2 says, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. On all flesh. There's the more. Not just a bunch of Jewish dudes, not just one particular ethnicity, but on all people. And that's where this is moving. This is God's trajectory here in this place. And it's that same prophecy that Peter's going to point back to, that he's going to identify with when he sees the distribution of the Spirit at Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. God shows up. We see that in classic uh, imagery of fire and wind and a loud noise. And the gathered assembly is filled with the Holy Spirit and they begin to speak of God's deeds and power in a host of different languages. Recognized languages by the observing crowd, but presumably in languages these filled individuals had not known previously. It's a miraculous moment, one that marks the promise to Abraham to be a blessing to the nations, but also a correction to that ancient Tower of Babel. What I write in here, the Tower of Babel debacle. But even more is going on here and perhaps in more subtle ways. Consider some of the differences here in our text in Acts between what it says in Acts and what Joel's prophecy says. So what, how Peter represents Joel's prophecy, there's differences in those texts. And I think those are quite telling in how it frames what the earliest Christians saw what was happening here. There's an addition of, and they shall prophesy. If you look at Acts chapter 2, verse 18, it adds that at the end, right after it's talking about uh, these, these slaves, that they shall prophesy. That's an additional uh, amendment that's added there. It's not found in the Hebrew, and it's not found in the Septuagint or the Greek translation of Joel 2.29. The inclusion adds emphasis to this carrying of the divine message by a lot who might otherwise be overlooked or marginalized. It affirms a dignity to persons, regardless of lot and regardless of status. And note that my is added in the Acts passage in front of slaves. My doesn't show up in front of slaves or servants in the Joel passage, but it does in the Acts passage. That's the language of belonging, of being claimed, and reinforcing a new vocation. Not only does this lift up the lowly, but also forms what will become a way for Jesus' followers that we might say are of greater status to identify themselves in service to the kingdom. The Apostle Paul being one of those servants or slaves for Christ. The least of these. And observe how the Acts quotation reads different from the Joel prophecy, even from the outset. Joel's, then afterward, is now replaced with in the last days. In the last days. Peter, or we might say Luke here, who's editing it as well, is locating these events that have now occurred. Jesus' resurrection, Jesus' ascension, and now this distribution of the promised spirit as a turning point in salvation history. It's an eschatological moment. There's something happening that has end times in mind here. It's what was promised before and has now come 
into fruition, which is a great word to use in light of Pentecost as a harvest festival, fruition. And the metaphors that accompany the Joel prophecy speak to such a turning point. But what is particularly striking here is that this turning point isn't toward apocalyptic judgment and destruction. That's not where it goes. It's not here to blast you, to reap down hailstones and fire upon you to destroy you. But rather what we see here is a pointer to grace and redemption. Our minds might turn to the prophecy and see the things that are happening on the celestial level and say, whoa, these are huge, things happening to the moon and the sun. But what happens here is everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved is where the emphasis lands. I've been part of communities where emphasis has been placed on the power of Acts chapter 1, 8. When the Holy Spirit comes upon you, you will receive power to be my witnesses to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the earth. That's not Peter's message here, though. He doesn't hone in on the manifestations, nor does he try to explain the mechanics surrounding the spontaneous language or prophesying. No, when Peter interprets the moment, he points to Jesus. That's where he points. He points to Jesus. And if we follow Acts 2 throughout, we see the gospel proclaimed and lived out in Jesus' community, a people God called, claimed, and empowered for community and mission, carrying a message of God's grace, forgiveness, and love in Jesus Christ. And this people is diverse, or is as diverse as the languages. The people of God now encompasses the nations, all of them, all the people. Now, one could easily here craft a summary of our text this morning that simply states this. Moses needs help. That's numbers. The prophet says help is coming. That's Joel. Jesus said your helper is coming. Now, that wasn't one of our texts, but it's John's gospel. Okay. And Peter announces your help has arrived. That's Acts. Pentecost sermon. Thanks be to God. But there's a question that emerges here in that gathered crowd in Acts that I think is our same question for us today. It's the same question us moderns have to ask when we see all of this and we read about this and we encounter this. We're asking the same question those ancients were asking in Acts 2. What does this mean? What does this mean? What am I looking at here? What is this telling me? What should I be hearing in all of this? Well, let me offer a, a few things for us to consider this morning in closing. One is this. First and foremost, it means that God is relentless. God is relentless in achieving the goal of rescuing the world. God's relentless in that. And he's relentless in drawing the nations into one beloved people. That's what God's been working at from the very beginning. But it's not in a melting pot kind of way. Right, when I was a kid in school, we talked about America being the great melting pot. And I was like, well, what's that? I don't, I don't work in metallurgy or anything like that. What's a melting pot? What? what? Hadn't gone to the melting pot yet. Hadn't enjoyed that delicious fondue. But it's not a melting pot kind of sense where people groups end up being stripped of their unique cultural contributions and voice. That's not what God is up to. 
We oftentimes do that to construct oneness. We manufacture kind of an artificial sort of oneness by taking away all the things that make us different, and now we're suddenly one. Right? It's a great technique. It's like dressing your kids all up the same way and taking a picture. All right, there was a little twin resentment in that, so just <laughs> receive that. But what we have here is we don't have that type of effort here. No, praises can be said in a whole host of language, languages. We see that at Pentecost. And we see Jesus is central, is central to the message of Pentecost as well. A Christ-connected world, connected to our creator through Christ and to one another in the power of God's own spirit. That's what God's up to, and that's what God is working at relentlessly. The th- second thing I kind of see here is there's a, an invited response to what has happened. That's clear here in this text. This is not for show. It's not intended to be mere spectacle or even spectacle at all. No, Jesus' life, death, resurrection, ascension, and triumph are leading to a powerful personal change in the hearts and lives of people and communities. You hear that in verse 38 and 39. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, so that your sins may be forgiven. You will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far away, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to him. There's a response there. Response to turn away from what your life has been, the trajectory your life's on, and to be enfolded into a new kind of life, actual life, by the one who is the giver and creator of life. There's a third piece I see here, and certainly these are just three that I've drawn up here. Many more could be added to this list. But Pentecost assumes a particular dignity for humanity. That God cares for all of us, from every nation, and that this grace is distributed across the globe. Recognizing that this is what God is up to, a light now shines on the places where the Pentecost experience and God's own mission diverge from our cultural attempts to exert power over others. Privilege. I know a lot's been written about privilege and said about privilege. But privilege demands things that are counter to the gospel and alien to the spirit. Our fellowship and aspirations as a spirit-filled entity and our own personal bodies filled by the Holy Spirit are better suited to confront and work against any kind of effort that espouses the marginalization and mistreatment of others for personal gain. That has to be part of Pentecost. That has to be part of what we see as unfolding in God's mission in the world. We also see is there needs to be a work to undo the harm, to bring healing. That's redemption and reconciliation. To undo it, that harm that has been visited on others in our name. And we do all of this work in the name of Jesus Christ. God, our salvation, but also God who's their salvation as well. This past weekend, I had the opportunity to travel down to Pasadena to be part of a conference. Call it an invite-only kind of thing, but you had to apply for it. And then you got a grant in which they, they would fly you and a couple leaders from your congregation uh, to come down and participate in this, like, 48 hours of, of presentation after presentation after presentation. 
And so myself and, and Elder Ken Cusack and uh, Elder Teresa Dunn uh, flew down uh, to Pasadena and participated in this. It's Rethinking the Church for the 21st Century. And there's a lot of pieces in there. I won't go into all the pieces this morning, but there's one that particularly caught my ear during the presentations. It's not a quote. It's not something that was said. I'm not going to read a paragraph to you. I'm just going to tell you how I felt in that moment. The new president of Fuller Theological Seminary was speaking at the very end of the conference. It's an African-American. Every single presenter up to that point was not African-American. So he gets up there and he speaks. And he starts out and we're all listening and people are taking notes. I'm taking notes of what he's saying. But he didn't come out with any fast pace or say anything really that was huge or something I thought, wow, that's, that's an important point. We better jot that down word for word. Didn't do anything like that. But something happened in the room during the time he spoke that hadn't happened all the way up to that point. There was a cadence and there was a kind of liturgy that there was brothers and sisters in the room knew that I did not know. What happened is he, as he began to speak and as he began to move through the words he was sharing, as Christ being the center of our hope, the center of the gospel, the center of our lives as a Christian community, people began to sh- say things like, come on, amen, yep, with regularity throughout what he was saying. And if you were to look around the room at that moment and see who were the people who were hearing that unseen cadence, it was the other African-American sisters and brothers in that room. And I couldn't help but be drawn to the sense of Pentecost in that moment. That people were hearing the gospel in their own language. And they were responding. And here I was in that moment as an observer to what God was speaking to them in a cultural way that I wasn't privy to. But yet it was beautiful. A beautiful expression of the church. Of what the church can be. And I wonder... In my own life, and again, this is just me wondering about my own self, and I I allow you to join in my autobiography here. But I wonder if I've been sold a bill of goods that's hollow and empty of how the church should be. That instead of being a church that looks like me, the church should actually look like the planet in which we inhabit. The people. Because that's who God is calling. And God's calling out to us, I think, this morning for us to be more active in our community. We see that in our art club that just concluded their work for this season but are getting ready for a new season in the fall. Efforts to step out and say, how do we become more and more engaged in what the Spirit's doing here in this community, in this world? How can I tap into that? How can I be one of the ones who participates in that cadence that goes out that I don't necessarily see, but I hear it with the ears of my heart and my soul that resonate with what the work of the Spirit's doing inside of me. And so this morning, I want to close, close, kind of like Paul here. I said I'm going to close, and then two chapters later, I'm really going to close. But let me cast a little bit of a vision here. I know this sounds a little Pentecostal here, people casting a vision like this. But I've been impressed coming out of this conference, and we had a chance to talk with the elders about this, and I'll talk for the session more, and we're going to kind of flesh this out a bit. But we have a tremendous opportunity on this campus where we have two worshiping communities that gather every Sunday. One gathers in English, and one gathers in Spanish. But we also have a tremendous barrier that stands between us. You might say, hey, Jimmy, what's that barrier? Is that they meet later in the day? No, that's not a barrier. That's just maybe a convenience-type thing where you can't attend. 
The barrier is that most of us don't speak Spanish. I don't speak Spanish. I took a couple years in junior high and high school, but I, I don't speak Spanish. And so I wonder a Pentecost response here, a gospel response for us, is that we might start a language school here at John Knox Presbyterian Church. That beginning in January of 2024, we launch our first cohort of people that are learning Spanish. And we're learning Spanish as an offering to our congregation, but also to our community, to anyone who would like to step past that barrier, to get skin in the game. And say, you know what, I've heard the old adage, you can't teach an old dog new tricks. But none of us are dogs. We can still learn. We can still grow. And maybe in the reverse side of that, we might also say there's some folks who speak Spanish who would like to speak English better. And they might recognize a barrier there as well. So that we can come into dialogue with one another. That we could worship together in a language that we all understand that together we could celebrate and hear the cadences of the Spirit that go out before us, and that this place might be filled with not only more Spirit, but more joy and purpose, and that we invite our community into this as well, and we say, we're not going to draw red lines anymore. But instead, we're going to draw arms together and embrace and see what God sees as God looks at each one of us. Love. Love for his creation, love for his people, inviting them home, inviting to come and be God's own people. So sowing in the morning, sowing seeds of kindness, sowing in the noontide and the dewy eve. I had to throw in there little harvest words here for you. Waiting for the harvest and the time of reaping, we shall come rejoicing by the Spirit's power bringing in the sheaves. Friends, let us pray together. Lord, we thank you for your great love that's extended to us. A love that enfolds us and holds us, that embraces us. Even as we try to scurry away and we hide, as we try to turn ourselves into corners of darkness, that the light of your love comes and finds us, that you pursue us, and that you welcome us home as honored, as honored children before our loving Father, who's so generous to us and so gracious. So Lord, help us now as, as we seek to live into a place that everything in our upbringings in many ways and our culture tells us not to step out into. Lord, help us to live open-handed and open-armed. Help us live with open hearts, receptive to the praises that are being sung by your children all of your children, that we might join in that same choir and chorus together. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.